0: Welcome back to Atlanta Diaries. I'm your host, Enma Popli. Thank you for joining me. In Atlanta Diaries, we celebrate unique and inspiring stories of breakthrough women to help future generations create their own. If you want to know more about Atlanta or listen to more episodes, you can visit my website, www.enmapopli.com. You can also share feedback or suggestions there. My guest today is Sandhya Rao. Sandhya is a staff attorney in the United States District Court, Houston Division and vice president of the not-for-profit IBARG Today. When Sandhya was only two months old, she was diagnosed with a rare brittle bone disease called osteopetrosis, which caused her blindness. But Sandhya grew up in a very supportive and positive household where there was never such a thing as self-pity and the mantra was keep moving and make the best of what you have. Sandhya graduated magna cum laude from Rice University and received a Doctor of Jurisprudence from the Stanford University Law School. Sandhya is awe-inspiring. She's on a mission to empower other blind people with tools to live their best lives and make their dreams a reality. Without further ado, let's listen to my conversation with Sandhya. Hi Sandhya, welcome to the show. Good morning, Anma. nice to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm so inspired by your journey and all that you've done. So I just feel grateful that you've agreed to be a guest on Atlanta Diaries. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) Lovely. So let's start with how did your early years shape your journey thus far?
1: Okay. So my parents, my dad came from India to go to graduate school here. I know I'm going way back, but that's part of the story. (laughs) So my dad came to get his PhD. And so he studied in University of Kentucky. Then they moved to Colorado where I was born. And then we moved to Houston where he started working at MD Anderson. I was born with a rare uh, brittle bone condition called osteopetrosis. Brittle bone disease, all the bones are very calcified. You would think, oh, calcium is a good thing, but no, too much calcium is not a good thing. So as a result, I you know, break bones very easily. They've had to put long uh, plates and screws inside my femur, my tibia, all these, the long bones have been broken multiple times. So to give some stability, they put the screws and plates in there. So I i like to say that I'm the original bionic woman. <laughs> so that's the disease. And that as a result of the disease also, they said that I would become blind by the time I was like a teenager. And so my parents were terrified So they said, okay, well, you can do this surgery to try to widen the optic canal. And they tried, and they ended up damaging the optic nerve in the process. So I have no vision in the right eye. And then luckily, they didn't try to do anything with the left eye. So I have very, very marginal vision in the left eye. Uh, As I went to school, went to public school, and it was... A parent that I couldn't read small print, obviously. So I was trying to read large print and it was very slow. And then I got to like second grade and they said, okay, well, she needs to learn Braille. And I was like, oh, no, I, I don't need Braille. I can see. <laughs> Luckily, my dad could see, you know, how this path was going to be and that I really needed the tool. So the Braille was going to be the key to future ability to work and function in a, you know, society. So he actually learned Braille first and then he, he taught me, he was very dedicated. Even my sister would help me showing me flashcards and there was a lot of support and I'm thankful that they insisted on my learning Braille because that really did shape everything after that.
0: I can only imagine how hard it must be, Sandhya, but it's just so beautiful to hear the kind of support you got from your dad and your sister, and that's amazing. Sandhya, share with us how come law, like how did you then take these decisions, how did you navigate them, who helped you, so many questions come to my mind when I hear that. Okay, let's see, so
1: like I said, I went to public school and then I went to Rice University here in Houston. It's a small private college and then it was kind of time to figure out like well what do you want to do when you grow up, right? And I always liked to write. I wanted to be a writer and that was just something that I I love to read and they kind of go together, reading and writing. And so and my dad was like, well, I don't know, you be able to make a living, you know, typical parents, my mom and dad were like, you know, want me to have a stable future. And so they said, well, what about law school? And then I thought about it, you know, all my life, I've been kind of like the arbiter in the family, <laughs> trying to solve their arguments. And of course, I did a lot of arguing as a kid, you know, just I was just the arguer. So we thought about it, and I said, "Okay." So I applied to law school, and I was accepted at University of Texas and Stanford Law School. And we were kind of torn because the UT was a great school here in Houston, you know, so close in Texas, and then there was Stanford, which you know had a great name, and that was also a great honor. We're just trying to figure out what was the right choice. And I finally I went to both schools to try to check it out, and it was just a very, you know, the environments were like one was a lot bigger, the UT was a lot bigger and a little more challenging, and as whereas Stanford was uh, a lot smaller, and we really liked the environment there, and so then I was like, oh, I don't know about going to California. And my dad's like, if I can come all the way from India to America, I think you can go to California. So <laughs> very practical people. Okay. So at that point, my dad worked at MD Anderson as a cancer researcher and he absolutely, you know, loved his work and he did cancer research. And you know, my mom is a stay at home mom and took care of us, three kids. So I have a sister and then a brother and then me. He took an early retirement from MD Anderson for me, and it was a big sacrifice because he loved what he did. And he always said, I'll never retire, but he wanted to support my career and my journey. And so we thought that going to Stanford would help open more doors for my path forward So we moved there and we stayed in graduate housing and my dad and mom, you know, my dad did a lot of reading. My mom and dad drove me everywhere I needed to go. So just incredibly supportive. I mean, I I can't tell you how, you know, they're like the wind beneath my wings. I mean, I, I couldn't do all the things that I do without them.
0: That's really beautiful. Huge respect for your mom and dad. The fact that he felt that it's important that you have a career, that's really incredible, Sandhya.
1: And you have to think about these where, you know, they're educated, but they've never dealt with anybody with a disability, you know, and culturally, that's like a big thing, but they never like treated me any different. They never like said, oh, you poor thing. I mean, you know, there was never such a thing as self-pity or anything like that and it was just you do it whatever you want to do will support you and that was the attitude that pervaded my life you know i never even really thought yeah i had some things to deal with but it was never like oh poor me i mean that was never in the offering we just kept moving <laughs> so make the best of what you have
0: awesome just these few sentences you've spoken thus far I think it'll give a lot of perspective to so many people, including myself. Yeah, because the limits that
1: sometimes you think are there, sometimes self-created, or maybe people don't know what's possible. Out of ignorance, they might say, oh, you can't do that. But you have to really dream big and think ahead and just try to be as positive. I know you use the word <laughs> inspirational, and I appreciate that. and I know what it means, but I think sometimes I feel like I'm not inspirational. I am living the life that I'm supposed to live. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, trying to make a positive impact in the world. Yeah, I have some health issues and Mm -hmm. they are, they can be inconvenient. I have broken a lot of bones at inopportune times, but you have to keep going, literally pick up the pieces and go forward. Because if you sit there and just think about all the pain you're in or all the stuff that you can't do, it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're know, you just going to go straight down. So I, I try to be as positive and just think about how blessed I really am
0: with what I have. I have to say that's really, really inspiring. So thank you for sharing all this. Sandeel, let's shift gears a little bit. Was there any time in your life when you felt that this was a challenge, you know, when you moved into the real world? like, Did you at any point feel that, or did people make you feel that there is a disability or a challenge?
1: I mean, I had all these great opportunities. Rice University and then Stanford. First of all, just being in the real world, going to a public school. So you're around all kinds of people and... That's really important, I think, because it shapes you and shapes your outlook on on life. And when I got to to law school and then we had to do these interviews and it's like crazy, you know, all these different law firms come from all over the country. And I did sixty interviews in three weeks, okay, which was crazy. So then they give you offers and then you you get an offer to fly you out wherever the firm is and interview you. And it was always a, a challenge because you're trying to be, quote, normal, whatever normal is. And so you are trying to say, hey, I can do this just like everybody else. I would literally take out my braille display and my laptop and show the potential employers how I did things. I felt like the Avon lady. I think now kids probably don't even know what an Avon lady is. But I mean, there were a lot of questions that the employers couldn't ask you during an interview. Like, how are you going to do this? And you know that's what they're thinking. So I went ahead and just put it out on the table. Like, hey, this is how I read. This is how I write. This is what I do. And then I think that helped open some communication. Whereas You don't know, and they don't know. The unknown is scary. And I was definitely an unknown to them. You know, like, how is this blind girl in a wheelchair going to help my law firm? You know, that's what they want to know. Right. But I eventually get some position at a law firm in San Francisco and one in Houston. And then I got a clerkship in Galveston to be a federal work for a federal judge and that was just a really great experience for me it was somebody taking initiative and believing in you because you need one person to give you a chance and that's where i think the undergraduate degree and the law degree from stanford really kind of opened the doors because those are known institution. They just
0: want to know if you can do the work. So then you didn't take the San Francisco opportunity. So the first opportunity was Galveston then. So both were summer clerkships,
1: but they did not result in a job. I didn't get a permanent offer from either one. And then I was like, okay, now what do I do? You know, cause normally those lead to a permanent job. So that didn't happen. I mean, you know, you got to keep going. Luckily, I got this clerkship and those are all basically you work in a federal court. This is at the trial court level. So you can learn all the proceedings. You watch trials. You prepare briefs. You get to work very closely with the federal judge. So that was a great opportunity for me. And the judge that I worked for, Judge Kent, he really believed in me and wanted to help me.
0: You know, I love the way you said that you were proactive and you, in a sense, showed them empathy and say, okay, let me answer for you what you might have in your mind. Let me just share with you myself. Yeah, because,
1: I mean, there is a lot of discrimination. You like to think that the world is perfect and fair and, you know, all that, but it's, it's not. You have to overcome a lot of stereotypes that they may not even know that they had them. I always say you can check all the boxes, you know, I'm blind, I'm in a wheelchair, I'm a female, I'm Asian. I mean, I don't think of them as challenges. I, I think of them as just trying to educate people. And sometimes people say things and do things out of ignorance. And so I do my best to try to shed light on that.
0: Yeah, that's really an interesting perspective. Sandhya, you know, you said there is discrimination whether we like it or not. Any anecdotes or any sort of stories where you experienced it and how did you navigate it?
1: Oh yeah. (laughs) When I first started my job at the federal courthouse here in Houston, you know, I was like out of law school. So I was maybe like pretty young still, 27, maybe 26, 27. And I had a full-time assistant in her job is to read everything to me and so forth. And people would just assume that she was doing all the work. Then they would hand her papers. They would ask her questions like I wasn't there. And I'm like, I'm here, you know, I'm the attorney here. Okay, I am grateful for her help. But she's not the one making the decisions. Okay. And so there you go. There's another opportunity to ed- educate people and say, no, that's not how it works. I'm the person that you need to talk to. And that happens. I mean, a lot of times, you know, people just talk to whoever's next to me, they pretend like I'm not there. But it gets better. I try to use humor to try to Put people at ease with the disability. And some people come in and they're, because I'm blind, they're like, they don't think they can use the word see or watch. And I'm like, "Uh, no, that's fine. You know, you can use the word see and watch. And I use the word see and watch. And it's just all kind of funny, you know, kind of take it in stride. I know people mean well. So it's funny. You can't make this stuff up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Sandhya, I've had to backtrack a little bit, you know, for the benefit even of the listeners. Share with us a little bit about, you know, your current role or how your role evolved from your summer clerkship to now.
1: Okay, yeah. Okay, so I did the Galveston clerkship for a year right out of law school. And then in 95, I got this job Called a pro se law clerk, and I was like, I don't even know what that is. So, I did a little research, and I said, Well, I I don't currently have a job after this year, and so I applied, and I was given a chance. The judge there, Judge Lee Rosenthal, you know, actually spoke to the judge that I was working with, Judge Kent, and she. Uh, hired me to be a staff attorney. And so that was another great opportunity right there. It took that opening the door in Galveston to help me get to the position in Houston. And what I did was I did legal research and writing. These are all cases that are filed by prisoners, and they can be either challenging the conditions of their confinement. Like they say, well, The Eighth Amendment prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. So just because they're in prison doesn't mean that you can just leave them there. I mean, they have rights. So we would read complaints about the denial of medical care or retaliation or excessive force. Those are civil rights claims. And then uh, the other part of my job is all these people have been convicted and they challenge the validity of their conviction of their say, well, I didn't do it. My lawyer didn't present XYZ evidence, or I was coerced into pleading guilty. The prosecutor didn't tell me all of the evidence that they had favorable evidence. So there's like all these different claims. So you're basically reviewing what happened in the state court. So here we get to go lots of reading and you're reading criminal uh, transcripts and then It has already gone through like six levels of review in the state system before it comes to the federal court. So basically, I present the claim and then do the legal research and then analysis of whether it is a valid claim or not. And so basically, they're trying to overturn the conviction. And the beauty of our American judiciary is that you're making sure that every person's due process is observed because you can have the worst criminal child molester or a murderer or whatever, and yet they have rights and they have a right to make sure that their conviction is constitutional. And so that's where I fit into the American judicial system. And I'm just so honored because I think there's a saying that says better that 100 guilty men go free than one innocent person is imprisoned. So that's where I get to be part of the judicial system and make sure that everybody's rights are being protected.
0: Thank you for sharing this, Sandhya. Sandhya heard Judge Kent's name so many times. Share with me. Your relationship, you know, with Tajkent, and how did Tajkent support you, or was your cheerleader?
1: You know, I went for the interview, and he is like a very loud, boisterous, you know, individual, and very domineering. But he was just such a kind, you know, gentle person, and he was so excited about my. Training, my credentials, what I had done to that point, and wanted me to be a part of his chambers. And I was just very blessed to have that opportunity. Got the job offer right on the spot. And of course, I said yes. (laughs) And that just helped uh, open a lot of doors. And he was always very supportive. I remember one time nobody was there. My assistant wasn't there, and my co clerk wasn't there. And he came in to ask a question and I was terrified. I was like, oh, I don't know. And, you know, and he asked the question and I was able to answer it. And it felt good because when you're young, you don't have a lot of confidence. And that helped me kind of realize, you know, I can do this, you know, I don't need somebody all the time. Absolutely. Santa, when you were in Galveston, your
0: parents came with you even there?
1: Oh yeah, we have a beach house in Galveston. So we were uh, living there and then what happened? Oh yeah, well, this comes back to the bones. So I started the clerkship in September and then in December I had a fracture. And so we couldn't go up the stairs in the beach house anymore. And so I had to have a surgery. And then I was commuting. My co-clerk, he was wonderful. So we would meet in the middle throughout my uncle's restaurant. It was like the Pony Express. They would take me out of my parents' car, put me in his car. We would drive the rest of the way to Galveston, which is like about an hour. And then we do the whole thing in reverse in the evening. So it was pretty crazy. And then. I actually had another fracture in June of that next year. So it was a tough year, but we made it through and kept going. But I had a really good relationship with the judge and um, with my co-clerks, my assistant. So I got to see how trials worked. I mean, that was really very
0: intriguing. So Sandhya, how do you navigate at home or, you know, even when you go to the courts and stuff? how do you navigate your way around
1: Okay, so I, like I said, I have a brittle bone disease. And so because of that, I have to be super, super careful. And in the house, I use a walker, it's called a rollator. It's like it has four wheels and it has like a chair. If I get tired, I can sit down, I hold that and I can walk, it gives me support. When I go out, I use a motorized wheelchair. And so what happens is I control the wheelchair with my right hand. There's like a joystick. And then the left hand, I use my cane that I mentioned, and I move it back and forth in front of me to gauge if there are any obstacles or steps or so forth like that. I also have like a, a manual wheelchair. If I want to travel, like if I want to go somewhere with my family, I can use a manual wheelchair. So it's just a matter of staying in one piece, trying to be careful because the combination of the blindness and the bone disease is what makes it tricky. Yeah, I can understand.
0: So now when you come to the courts or when you come to your workplace, it's just you and your assistant.
1: Uh, Yeah. So I travel on, it's called Metrolift, it's a paratransit system. And so they come to your house and they, I use a power wheelchair So they pick me up in the wheelchair and take me to work. And I also use a cane because I can't really see well enough to know I don't want to go tumbling off the curb or downstairs or something. Uh, I use a cane and a wheelchair. So it's a little kind of complicated. Nothing is simple, (laughs) right? But I am able to navigate independently. So that's the beauty of it. And I, I feel like every time I go out in the world and just do what I'm doing, you're educating somebody that, hey, there's this person in a wheelchair that's blind and going to a restaurant or going to a movie. So it's it's important for people to see that people with disabilities are just like everybody else.
0: Shifting gears a little bit, so many times I heard the word communicate. It's almost like you've taken it on yourself that you need to let people learn and understand and educate them. So. Should we talk about iBug now and is that why you started it or is that why you got involved in it? Share with us, you know, your NGO journey. Okay. Um, So
1: it happened uh, in 2011, I think it was, I went to a presentation, it was called the Houston Area Visually Impaired Network, and they were doing an expo at the University of Houston. And there was going to be a presentation by this guy he was a NASA engineer, and he's going to talk about the iPhone. And I was like, okay, sounded pretty cool. So I went, the room was packed. And there was this guy just doing all kinds of things with his iPhone, texting and doing the surfing the internet and calling his friends and And I had my sad little razor flip phone and I couldn't really do anything. I could barely, I couldn't make a call, but I couldn't check my messages. I would have to ask my nieces for help and they'd say, oh, you know, I'll do it for you. You know how kids are, teenagers, right? (laughs) They don't show you, they just want to do it and move on. And so it was, depending on teenagers, was not a great option. I mean, they were great, but you know how kids are. So um, I was very intrigued by this guy. His name is Michael McCulloch. So it turns out he worked at NASA for 35 years, and he started losing his vision due to glaucoma. And he got his iPhone, and there were accessibility features built into it called voiceover. And so he thought it would be a real game changer for blind people. And just think about, I mean, people that are not familiar with blindness don't realize how much technology a blind person needs to function on a daily basis. You need like a braille calendar, a braille watch, or even like a, some device to read a book for you, a tape recorder, something to take notes with. So it just goes on and on. There's so much stuff that you need, right, to live. And this iPhone was able to just give you all this functionality in one device. And so several people were asking him after the presentation, like, hey, you know, we want to learn how to do what you're doing. And that's how it got started, like about a month after that. We started meeting on a monthly basis, and then it started on a weekly basis. And so that was in 2011. And I took an early role, started getting involved, and we became a nonprofit and to try to increase our outreach. And uh, we have all kinds of programs. We have training on the iPhone, training on the Mac, training on Android devices, All of our training is free because we want to make sure that cost is not a barrier because uh, there's a lot of unemployment and underemployment in the blind community. And so we didn't want cost to be a barrier to being empowered by this technology. And in addition to all the training, and we have like amazing volunteers, all of us are volunteers that want to help others. And In addition to all the training, we have various social events. We have like a book club, we have a Star Trek discussion group, and then we have an audio described movie. And we do a movie every week. And this started during the pandemic when everybody was socially isolated, right? It's really become a really great way for people to get together all over the country, even internationally. An audio-described movie is basically a movie, and then they have description when there isn't a dialogue going on. So it's telling the blind person, "Hey, the guy is about to pull the gun out," or you know, "The guy is walking up the stairs," you know, or "The she is smiling." I mean, so there's all kinds of, you know, description that if you don't see, you don't know, right? So it's a really great audio description is amazing. So we started doing that. And we get together every Friday night and we have a lot of fun and I create that sense of community. And coming back to what you were saying about giving back, like I said, I have a very supportive family, but a lot of people do not have that. And I feel like our iBug, it's the iBlind users group, or iBug today, we provide training and opportunities to be more independent and to also connect with others. And it's just a beautiful thing because we've created this family. I really feel like it's a family. I mean, they know when you're sick. They know when something's wrong just by the tone of your voice. You know, I love what we're doing and what we have created. And I feel the most proud of what we've done with iBug.
0: That's really cool. In fact, when I was listening to you, you know, I shared this with you the other day as well. I volunteer in this NGO called Jayvakil Foundation for children and adults with intellectual disability. And we have this most beautiful person called Sushma, who is our telephone operator. And, you know, I was just thinking about her. And as soon as I go back to India, I'm going to go and check out her phone and see what she's using and make sure that I move her into an iPhone now.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of the iPhone is that every iPhone has the built-in capability. You don't have to go and add something to it to make it accessible. So Apple has really got a commitment and Android devices are moving along swiftly But uh, the Apple has kind of been in the market a lot longer as far as accessibility goes. So, But the technology is expensive. And so we're trying to develop a program where we can provide some of these devices free of cost. That's one of our goals. And like I said, just continue to provide the training. I mean, we have sighted people that say, oh, I didn't know you could do that. I mean, do you teach sighted people? Because We can do everything on the iPhone that anybody else can do, texting, Safari, sending email. I mean, those are all basic things that we do every day. And you're creating a sense of communication again through that technology. Our tagline is Empowering the Blind Through Accessible Technology Training. So that's really what it's all about is people giving them the tools so they can reach their potential, whatever that is.
0: So powerful. So, Sandhya, that means when you sent me messages or I accepted my calendar invite or confirmed to me, was it all done by you through your assistive technology?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So what it is, I'll just briefly explain. So when you see your iPhone, I'll just use the iPhone because you're familiar with that. So it has various icons you know, on the screen and then you, you say, okay, I want to open Safari and you touch it, right? And you open it. Whereas for the blind person, how do they know where the Safari icon is? How do you know where the music icon is? So what this thing is called voiceover is built into your phone. A lot of people accidentally turn it on and don't know what to do sometimes. So what happens is it is reading to you everything that's on the screen. This is completely different from Siri. Everybody thinks it's Siri. No, Siri is totally different. So what will happen is when I touch my phone, it'll say Safari. It'll say clock. It'll say music or phone or whatever. And then when I, okay, I want to make a call. So then I double tap, touch the thing two times and then it opens the phone application. So we are teaching people the gestures they need to execute the commands and use these applications. That's what we're doing. Because the gestures that a blind person uses and a sighted person uses are
0: totally different.
1: So that's what we're doing.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Sandhya, I'm going to ask you a flip question. Who is your inspiration? Like, Who's your role model? Who inspires you?
1: (laughs) Oh, let's see. I'd have to go to my parents, of course. My dad and mom both. My dad, again, you know, left India to come here to go to graduate school and came with $30 in his pocket, you know, and worked so hard to raise his family. And that is just amazing. My dad always says, do your job, even if they wouldn't pay you and you still love it, that's when you know you're at the right place. And that's what I believe. And my mom, I didn't really know this story until recently. I mean, but my parents, like I said, didn't have a lot of money when they got started. So he, they already had my sister in India, and he couldn't afford to bring them. And so she had to wait like 18 months. So she's traveling with this baby from this little town in India, They had to take a bus and a train and at some point they got on like a lorry, like a big truck and they had to get all the way to Bombay to travel. She didn't know English. So she was taking this big adventure and I was just like, how did you do it, you know? I think that took a lot of courage on her part, raising three kids and one of them with a disability and just moving on, you know, and she had health problems, she has asthma. And I think it's just resilience, you move forward, you don't sit there and dwell on anything negative, everybody has problems. But I think the two of them together are just like amazing. They are tremendously committed to their family. Even now, I'm not a baby anymore, but they are still taking care of me. And I'm just so blessed to have them.
0: So lovely. And then who is your best friend?
1: I mean, I have friends, I have people that I work with that, you know, are supportive. I think it's really important to surround yourself with positive people that make you want to be a better person. So I don't Believe in negative naysayers. I kind of distance myself from them. So you know, my brother, my sister. I've got my nieces, and, you know, nephews. So it's just like I have this huge support network, and so I'm really, really blessed by that.
0: Since you talked about naysayers and there were there any naysayers in your journey, and you then intentionally decided to just move away from them. Any anecdotes, any stories which made you more strong in that resolve?
1: One time, it's a long time ago, and I was a teenager, I was like 14. And we went to India. And my grandmother, she was not educated. They lived in a very small village. And she said something like, you poor thing. That's all she said. My parents, we speak Telugu. And I had never heard that before. Like I said, my parents are very positive. They've never expressed any kind of pity. I was so upset, thinking back now, it's like she didn't know any better. you know, she she really did think that this is God punishing me and you know, God punishing my parents and all this stuff that they have learned in their lifetime. but at the time, i tried to run away which is like ludicrous but i was i had a fierce temper and they still give me a hard time about it i was like you know this is a little village and my me and my brittle bones and i was trying to get away because i was so upset but luckily nothing happened but uh it's just a tribute to my parents again that i was never told that i couldn't do anything
0: Thank you for sharing this, Sandhya. I read, you know, in one of your interviews that you play the piano. So tell us about that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I'd always wanted to play the piano and luckily I, like I said, I learned braille and then at the lighthouse in Houston, my parents tried to find if there was anybody that would teach somebody who was blind. They recommended this lady. And her name was Edwina Poteet. And she was a Braille transcriber. And, you know, she taught Braille music, which is amazing. It was like a needle in a haystack to find this person. And so I started learning piano when I was 10 years old. And I like to say now I have a baby grand, I call it my car that I never got. (laughs) Since I never got a car, that's my car in my living room. And Braille music is very different because you have to read it and then memorize it and then play it because obviously I don't have four hands like one of those, you know, like a goddess, right? <laughs> I wish I did, but you have to figure out how the notes come together and then you play the music. Whereas in print music, it shows you how the notes are to be played and what plays at any given time. So it's a little bit different from print music, but I have play classical music. I play uh, rock and roll like Elton John and Billy Joel and all kinds of different stuff. So it's it's a real gift. I mean, I'm very lucky. And
0: did you on your own feel inspired to learn or was it your mom and dad who inspired you to start playing the piano?
1: Oh, no, they knew it was something that I, I wanted to do. And since football really wasn't an option. Oh, so <laughs> sweet. <laughs> So the funny part is, we had this dog. And my parents didn't know anything about raising a dog. And we thought they thought the dog was like crazy, but it was just really a puppy. So they had to give the puppy away. And they got me a piano. So that's how I actually got my first piano.
0: How often do you play the piano? Do you play it at
1: home? I try to play, but there's so much going on with my work and with the nonprofit. I call those my two jobs. So when I'm not doing one, I'm doing the other. My parents were like, you don't even have time to talk to us. And I'm like, I feel like there's so much to do and there's so many people that I want to help. So again, they enable me to do all that by helping me with the cooking and the cleaning, you know, all that kind of stuff. Also, my bones play into that. I had a fracture. Uh, last year, I just was plugging something in and I broke my forearm. It took a long time to heal. And so couldn't play the piano while that was happening. So kind of have to work around
0: that. <laughs> but I try to play when I can. Sandhya, this has been absolutely amazing. And before we end the conversation, I have one last question. So many times you said that I want to do so much. So what does impact mean to Sandhya? What is it that's really on your wish list? How would you want Sandhya to be remembered?
1: Okay. I guess it's, I'll just quickly give an example. In 2014, I had a fall. I had another dog and the dog was a puppy and it pulled me down in my driveway and I broke five bones at one time. I broke my left leg, my right leg, and my right arm. and. You know, my parents took care of me, had to have all these surgeries. I'd never done that before. It was terrible. And, you know, on drugs and painkillers, and it was horrible. There was two months of terrible pain and suffering. But I tell you this because I kept thinking when I get better, there's so many things that I wanted to do. Obviously, I wasn't doing a lot, but even with all that, like two weeks after that, I was working. And the thing that I want to know that people should remember is you just always have to keep moving forward. Don't look back. I mean, the past is the past, you know. So moving forward, I want to give people the tools that they can live their lives, their best lives and make their dreams a reality. I mean, I've had so many opportunities and I want to help other people do what they want to do so that they are fulfilled. You know, maybe it's sending a text to their grandchild or reading a book on their own or traveling to a movie, you know, on the transit system. I mean, it's not always great things. It's always little things are what empower us. And I feel proud when I can make my own cup of tea or make my own breakfast. I mean, it may not be a big deal to anybody else, but I did it myself and I know that I can survive. I'll be probably surviving on oatmeal and tea, but that confidence, you have to have confidence and belief in yourself and giving people the tools to accomplish their potential
0: that's really beautiful sandhya since atlanta diaries is a place where we learn and unlearn our definitions of success and achievement any parting thoughts for young leaders or aspiring leaders as they transition
1: ah i would just say really think about what you love And what you want to do and don't let people say oh you need to do this or you need to do that they mean well but ultimately it's your life and you need to do the thing that you love because that will ensure that you are doing the best possible if it's something you don't love you're not going to be doing your best And that's how our society is going to be enriched by all these people that are doing what they love. So I think it's just really important to follow your heart and you have to be realistic, have a plan, you know, dream and then make a plan and how are you going to accomplish it? So it's several steps, but always keep sight on what your dream is. Thank you, Sandhya. Thank you for walking this journey with me. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun.
0: Thank you very much for listening. All my guests have brought their most vulnerable selves on Atlanta Diaries. And even if a small segment of these conversations can help champion the journey of one person, it's going to be really worth it. I do have a request for you. Please share this podcast on your social media and with your family and friends. Our society is constantly evolving and Atlanta Diaries must too. I really appreciate if you can leave your feedback in the form of a review or a rating. These are impactful and rousing stories that need to be shared far and wide. See you next time for another one on Atlanta Diaries.